Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, and we have contributing editor Chris Steyerwald. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the new political editor at News Nation. Plus, a new book, Chris. Man, I I don't need this much. I don't need this much glory, laud, and honor uh, just to be part of a wonderful podcast such as this. I would be content just to be your colleague and friend. I mean, it's just been so long since we've had you on. I feel like we need to run through the full thing. But you you literally have a book coming out in like six weeks. I do. It's called Broken News. Uh, and uh, I am n- not ashamed of it, which is, I think, uh, Jonah <laughs> jo- Jonah will agree. I hope uh, that that is a, a good feeling to have when a book comes out that you're like, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Like, I'm I'm not embarrassed. So I, I, I it's a book about the media and politics, and I, I'm, I'm not ashamed. All right. That is about as good a plug as we give on this podcast. Not ashamed. <laughs> and we're not ashamed to have you here today. All right. Plenty to talk about. We will start with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. We'll talk about the fallout from this week's January 6th hearing. And the Democrats have spent over $42 million in Republican primaries propping up MAGA candidates. What does that mean? Let's dive right in. Let's start with Roe v. Wade. I've talked to Jonah plenty about this. Chris, you're the one I want to hear from. Reactions, thoughts, feelings. Well, um, I I wrote about this for my dispatch column uh, this week. I don't know. Time is a flat circle. Uh, I, I was I was stranded in not stranded at an unexpected stay over in Denver <laughs> as uh, as the American airline industry continued to go through some the uh, growing pains. But here's what I figure: the generation of men and women who were born in the first two decades of the 20th century. Uh, particularly the 16 million who fought and served in the Second World War, um, made a consensus for the United States, and it was formed in a very painful way, right? Uh, the, The experiences of the 25 years after the Second World War were very wrenching. Uh, much of it was needed uh, on matters of race, on matters of gender, on uh, our, our freedoms as Americans. And at the end, by the, you know, the mid-1970s was one of the worst periods in, in American history, right? A, a, a truly, we forget how much political bombing, you know, how terrorism was part of life. Uh, we fled Vietnam, abandoning our allies to certain death. Uh, the vice president resigns, the president resigns, and different scandals. It's a real disaster. And Roe was part of, along with, you could you could mark Roe, uh, you could also mark Gerald Ford's pardon of Richard Nixon as a urgent effort to form a new consensus in the post-Watergate reforms that happened. And we used it for 50 years, right? We, we have been, my generation uh, and others have been dining out on the work of, and I hate greatest generation, but that generation's work of making a consensus. We have exhausted it, and now we are going through the wrenching period of our own of making a new consensus, and it will not be satisfactory to anyone entirely. It will take a long time to really get it there, uh, and it's going to suck, but it's necessary, and we have an opportunity to make it better. So I guess that's I'm part not the, of the broom question. behind your elephant, Chris, but I just want to clarify <laughs> something for you. Yes. When you, when you say you hate the greatest generation, you mean you hate the label 
You don't actually hate all the members of the no, generation. No, Jonah, I do. I do. Generation. You know what? Let's let's start with let, let's start with the, uh, the boys of Pwandu Hawk. Overrated. No. Uh, yes. There 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 have been many. There have been many great generations in American history. And Lord, hear our prayer. The greatest generations are still to come. Chris, the question I keep getting though is, will we reach consensus? Because when you Look at Europe, of course. They didn't have Roe v. Wade. Their tectonic plates continued to shift little by little. Um, and, and so they all have a pretty solid ground on this. But for 50 years, we haven't done that. Are we just going to start back at 1973 and reach that consensus like they did? Or has something changed fundamentally because of the intervening 50 years? So, you know, Americans, we have a rights-based society. And that's different than most of Europe, right? We we understand natural rights differently and our rights differently and think about things in different terms. Um, I would say that on issues like uh, similarly challenging issues like uh, capital punishment, for example, um, America has come to a consensus, right? Some states have the death penalty. Some states don't have the death penalty. Uh, and it, it takes time to work out. This one is much more challenging because of that rights-based understanding when you have rights that are in conflict, right? So you have people who are standing up for the rights of unborn children, and you have women who are standing up for their rights to have control over their reproductive lives. And the, when the rights are at odds and you can't, you, you, this is not going to be easy to solve. I do believe that what will happen over time is that it will form and we will tire basically of the subject. But right now, especially for the people who are on the losing side of this debate, this is just uh, absolutely incendiary. But I believe, give it a decade, give it 15 years, we'll, water will find its own level. Jonah, is this going to be, um, compare it to another political culture war topic, guns, immigration, health care. Um, what is this going to be more like in the next few years? That's an interesting question. Something where the middle wins, something where the base takes both sides to the extreme and they never talk to each other because they both want the issue. What should I think of this like? Um, well, as we talked about on Dispatch Live the other night um, and how I, I, I wrote in my column earlier this week, uh, with, with regards to the conservative movement, I think the analogy is the end of the Cold War, where one of the legs of the three-legged stool of conservatism has been knocked out and you're going to see new factions all over the place. But that's not what your question was. Um, I guess I would say we could be... Let me put it this way. We could be entering into a time that is at moments analogous to, different, to various moments either prior to uh, the passage of Prohibition or the repeal of Prohibition. Like there's going to be a lot of tumult. Interesting, right? And every you're going to have people wanting prohibition, right, across the country. I mean, I don't. I really want to avoid civil war analogies because, like this, and and we were talking about before we started how part of the problem is is that when you get a fundamental question about how to define a human being, federalism gets kind of messy, um, and complicated, and um. And I don't think we're going to a civil war anyway, but you can kind of, it gives you a greater appreciation about how finding a compromise on slavery was so friggin' hard um, because it really was a binary thing for a lot of people. And um, and I'm glad the the right side won that 
that argument, although Cornell just took down a bust of Lincoln because apparently they disagree. That's a comment for another time. Um, um, so I think that it's, when I say it's like prohibition, I think it's because you have so many people bought into extreme positions, as sort of Chris was saying, that it's just going to, I mean, there's a reason why, other than his wrath, uh, God made the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. Um, it was because they needed to get the sort of slave mentality out of their heads. They needed to get their unbelief out of their heads. Um, similarly, I think there's a whole generation of, of political leaders and religious leaders and uh, secular progressive activists who are so bought in and, ha- and control and have the reins of the various institutions and factions that they have that it's going to take a while for people to say, hey, you know, you're not the most useful part of this conversation and you're not helpful to find a solution. And that means for the next few years, it's going to be, and few broadly defined, it's just going to be an incredible amount of tumult. I mean, it was kind of amazing right before we recorded, President Biden had his press conference at the NATO summit. And he said the one thing that is under, and I'm grossly paraphrasing, but this is the gist of it. The one thing that is undermining America's standing in the world and the stability of the United States as the leader of the free world are the extreme decisions of the Supreme Court. And (laughs) that I found to be an interesting framing in the history of foreign affairs and domestic politics. (laughs) Chris, is there room politically for people in the middle on this issue? Will we see politicians emerge with consensus ideas who actually can get traction? Well, in some states, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, this is an issue on which there, this is like, uh, you mentioned immigration. Uh, there is a consensus on it. It's just not politically viable because of our crappy primary system. Um, but yes, most Americans are in accord on the question. We are a pro-choice country that favors a lot of restrictions on abortion. When you get down to what's the plurality position, the majority position in America is Americans want access to legal abortions overall, but don't like them after the first trimester. And if you could do a national plebiscite where you really had turnout, um, you know, I'm direly opposed to mandatory voting, but if you had real mandatory voting and you could really find out, you would see that, uh, uh, you would easily pass a ban after the first trimester. But, uh, you know, maybe think about it this way. If this decision had come down a decade ago, Donald Trump would never have been president, right? Um, Abortion is such a, has been such a powerful annealing force inside the Republican Party since the early 1980s, right? Since really Reagan, right? And the the Christian coalition and, and bringing that, stool, as Jonah uh, uh, referred to it, bringing that together. And now the issues will for Republicans. So if you're, if the Republicans had nominated Donald Trump in a post post row world, what was the biggest argument that people made that Republicans made of good conscience made on behalf of Donald Trump, which was, yes, 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 he's terrible, but I can't give uh, Hillary Clinton those Supreme court picks because of abortion. And that was the moral argument made in favor of Donald Trump. Well, if you take that away, what are you down to? And this is why, by the way, one of the reasons that the trans obsession on the right, like this really like intense, all of this energy, and it's on both sides. It's, it's reactionary, certainly. But I think the, the culture war right uh, is going to move on to more um, uh, exotic 
issues uh, now, and I think that will change the Republican Party uh, in con in considerable ways. So, Sarah, can I turn the tables on you for a second? Yeah. Since, among other things, you are the only lady on this podcast, and and um, I've got lady parts. I've got lady parts. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, you asked, can we find politicians who have compromised? So, this is partly. A media bias question, not accusing you of it, but uh, um, and partly a framing question. The weird irony, it seems to me, is that the people with the most uh, reasonable is a is in the eye of the beholder on this stuff, but the people with fairly colorable arguments to be the compromisers are among the most hated people in American <laughs> politics, according to the mainstream media. So, like Ron DeSantis. He could basically have his state legislature declare ham sandwiches to be ball the new god, right? And they would do it. And um, not the worst choice. He's not going to ask the them. worst choice. <laughs> he's he's not going to ask them to uh, ban abortion. He's sticking with the fifteen week um, limit, which he got passed last April. And if you're just doing it on paper, right? If you're not going to get so caught up, and if you're going to if you're going to talk about this 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 plurality position that Chris describes, um, that's the compromise position. Meanwhile, it's the Democrats who quote unquote want to codify Roe, which is in fact the extreme position. And so the question is, will we ever be able to have um, the sort of the debate or the media recognize that in fact, you know, allowing for first trimester abortions pretty much on demand? But then uh, more restrictions in the second and third trimester is, in fact, the compromise position and not the extreme position. Unless you disagree and think it's not it is an extreme position. Um, nope, I agree with you. And my answer is no. And I'll tell you what I think this is analogous to, which is voting rights issues. That if you go through the most recent round, you know, um, Joe Biden gave that speech in Atlanta in what January or February of this year, where he talked about the 19 states that had passed restrictions to voting, that this was Jim Crow 2.0. But when you went and actually read which 19 states and laws he was talking about, first of all, four of them had Democratic governors. Um, and now they were mixed, led, you know, uh, not trifecta Democratic states. They had um, often Republican House or Senates or whatever else. Um, and, you know, several of them made voting easier in some respects, harder in some respects. And so it goes to like, well, which do you think is uh, a more restrictive voting state? 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. voting, but only for seven days or 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. voting, but for 17 days. I think that's just a, a like a different question. One of those states is not Jim Crow 2.0. Um, and so I, and yet, the narrative from the media to this day hasn't changed. It is that there is massive voter suppression going on in half the country, uh, sort of regardless. And so I, I think you're not going to get away from that narrative idea that, and, and I mean, you're seeing it this week, um, you know, that 15 week ban that Mississippi upheld. I haven't seen many reports about that being totally within the mainstream of modern societies and other countries. 
Um, instead, you know, it's women will die. So yeah, I think, I think maybe you end up there eventually, but the voting rights act stuff doesn't give me a lot of comfort on that front. Don't you all, don't you all figure though, that some Republicans are going to oblige them? Uh, and they they already are. Yeah. I I haven't, I haven't read all the news, uh, since last night or today, but I am, I would imagine that, uh, given what a colorful quilt, uh, of people make up our nation's state legislatures, uh, that there's going to be some real hot tickets out there on this stuff and that a bidding war is going to take place. Like, so DeSantis now says we can let it stand. But what about when Greg Abbott's like, oh, yeah, well, try this. And we watch them do it on their dumb Internet laws and stuff like that, where these these states will get into a bidding war uh, to set what the new standard for uh, pro-life means. And what and this and this is and this is how this stuff works This is how the the ideological uh, slide happens, which is it's a ratchet. Uh, One state goes here and then somebody has to match it. And the national I'll put it this way. The national right to life is not going to disband. They're not going to say, guys, we did it. We had, we achieved our 48-year goal. They're going to take this as far as they can in every state, and, and there will be a bidding war. Uh, that seems clearly true, but it makes it all the more important to talk about a 15-week ban, as as Jonah said, like whether it's the compromise position or the reasonable, a reasonable position, something like that. You know, I've heard now Republicans or conservatives talk about absolutely, yeah, banning women from crossing state lines, get an abortion in another state. That, um, you know, when it was brought up that if you, for instance, ban abortion after conception, that you would end up um, making a lot of fertility treatments illegal. And a reaction I heard was, good, IVF is immoral and we Ah. should ban it. And I was well, like, that is not going to be the politically popular position I saw, that you think I saw somebody is. at the Heritage Foundation said, well, we don't want to imprison the mothers uh, who are seeking abortions. <laughs> we should have an involuntary psychiatric commitment uh, for women who are seeking abortion. <laughs> That's going to go great. You can just see how when they're like, look, ladies, you're just feeling crazy. So what we're going to do is we're going to lock you up for a while till you come to your senses and we explain to you what you really want. Uh, the, 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 uh, the fire bombings will, con- will commence in five, four, I mean, geez, Louise. Uh, but I'll be interested to see, especially that Ron DeSantis Abbott battle. Cause you're exactly right. We've seen them do this on other topics and other culture war topics. And yet, at least for this moment, um, haven't seen it on abortion yet. Although Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas gave an interview where he said, um, he would absolutely defend a Texas state law that criminalized uh, sodomy. Again, this was the basis of Lawrence v. Texas, the case that Justice Thomas in his concurrence said should be revisited because of the substantive due process foundation that it uh, lays upon. And I was like, really, Ken Paxton? You're going to, he's like, let's take it to the Supreme Court. Sodomy is the midterm issue that's going to really seal the deal for Republicans. They just need to get back on the sodomy question because that's where that's where the voters are, right? That's where the persuadable voters are. Is I mean, that's a sodomy it's amazing. question mark. It's not even gay marriage. It is putting right. someone in jail for their yeah. private bedroom behavior. An act of Congress. <laughs> oh, it's an Small act of Congress. C. Exactly. <laughs> well, not according to Madison Cawthorn, but whatever. That's fine. Yeah, that's, uh, fair. fair, fair. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's move on to our next topic, which is the January 6th hearings. Um, this week, a 25-year-old aide to former chief of staff Mark Meadows uh, gave, I mean, pretty bonkers town testimony to the committee. It was a sort of emergency meeting of the committee. They'd given the public less than 24 hours notice. A lot of what she testified to was things she overheard. Um, some of what she testified to were things that she was told from other people. Her credibility now, uh, the focus of everything involving the January 6th committee, because in some ways it involves their credibility. The Secret Service um, saying that they have released everyone involved to give testimony under oath. Um, Chris, did this undermine the January 6th committee when it turns out that they didn't ask the Secret Service whether they would corroborate her testimony or rebut her testimony and instead just put a 25-year-old out there to dry? I don't, I don't think that, uh, well, I, I, I don't pretend to know all the facts. I know that they had talked to at least one agent, I think, but I, I, I don't know what all they did. And we should also point out here, this is a matter with real consequences for our government in the future because, of course, we there is a, a compact between presidents and the Secret Service that goes yep. back to Abraham Lincoln about we will we will forget everything, right? Uh, if we get to the point where Secret Service agents are forced to testify about the gross things that presidents do. I mean, you can imagine if you had served under while uh, Lyndon Johnson was president, you would still be pouring bleach right through your eyeballs <laughs> for the terrible stuff that you saw that that wretched man do. Although and, in fairness, Bill Clinton tried to make the case that Secret Service could not testify against right. him. And that was rejected by the court that that uh, at least legally speaking, the Secret Service had no privilege. From a legal standpoint, I understand. I'm just saying future we if we want to keep presidents safe, presidents yep. have to presidents have to feel comfortable governing and being themselves around Secret Service agents because one of the things, speaking of Bill Clinton, that we talked about uh, that you just mentioned, if Clinton's assignations, secret assignations, were taking him uh, to unsafe places, uh, unsupervised time, that this opened him up to peril and therefore the country. Uh, so it, I would just say that's this becomes a very tricky space. And I don't know how th- those considerations affected how everything has been handled. But I will, that's a very long uh, way to say this. The people who are going the hardest after this young woman uh, are the same people who were, a lot of them were the same people who were saying, well, these, not, this doesn't matter. This just doesn't matter. Well, apparently they were watching. Um, and I will, I will also say the way that the committee did this was tremendously effective, right? Because normally hearings are boring, right? Uh, I did one. It was 
I didn't say any, there was there was I didn't say anything I hadn't said to you, right? Um, <laughs> there there was no there was no like I can't believe it. What you're saying, Joe Biden is the president? I can't believe it. Uh, there was no. You know, I'm still mad at you for not finishing your testimony by saying no, you won't. This is a podcast. No, That's you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> I would have totally done that. I would have. T- I wish you would have pointed it out. Uh, you're excused. No, I'm not. This is a podcast. Um, but I, I think. The way that they did this, so hearings are terrible and uh, mostly awful in American po- Congress. One of the ways that Congress has, fails to be Congress is that it cannot perform its oversight uh, duties because uh, of television cameras and the whorishness of politicians and the need to be famous. And uh, they most hearings devolve into uh, useless soundbite uh, machines uh, where, you know, the you know the the Maisie Hironos or the Ted Cruz's or whoever are doing their little uh, C-SPAN thespianism. Um, this committee has functioned differently, uh, and for a lot of different reasons. Kevin McCarthy's error in trying to deep six the whole thing by pulling all his members off when he couldn't get a, people who were a target of the probe uh, on the committee stacks up as a worse and worse. Well, look, I think law. I'll I'll cut to the chase just to say. Long term, this is good for the Republican Party. This is a this is a hygienic activity that needed to happen that uh, the Republican leaders in Congress could not bring themselves to do in a different way. This is what they get. And long term, it's good for the Republican Party because it it if the Republican Party could nominate Donald Trump again after what he did, I, I, it's you know it's invalidating. It's uh, it's it's way worse than Williams Jennings. It's way worse than Democrats thrice nominating William Jennings Bryan uh, and. So and it would be an odium. So I think this is long term good for the hygiene of the of the republic. Jonah, did Kevin McCarthy make the right decision not finding Republicans who could sit there and cross examine a Cassidy Hutchison and say, so wait, you didn't hear this yourself. You did. They ever tell you anything else that they exaggerated? You said that he was in the beast, but we're watching video that he's in the SUV and the beast. You can't get to the steering wheel. There's a panel in between the two. So I think I asked you this question last week, um, and uh, <laughs> jokes on you, friend. I, I, I think it's a fascinating question um, because I mean, first of all, you can't do you know. Some historians said history does not provide alternatives, right? You just mm-hmm. don't know what did what door number two would have led to. Um, in so I'm sort of. As part of your answer last time, I believe, um, Sarah, you you pointed out that like part of the problem Republicans have is that they don't actually have good rebuttals on the top line, the main thrust of the narrative. Right? They can they can say, "Oh, that wasn't the beast; that was a different car," and they can say, "Well, so and so says that I didn't; he didn't tell you that story," but they they can't rebut the major thrust of the allegations very well, you know, because it's pretty obvious what happened. And we know this in part from inference because you're not hearing them make this, these cases outside of the hearing room, right? I mean, the, 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 the trick to watching these hearings is to completely ignore every one of the committee members, including Liz Cheney, right? I mean, like I love Liz. I think she's being heroic and all that, but, Virtually every single um, witness at this thing, except for two, 
uh, African American election workers, um, and uh, our own Chris Darwalt, and I'm forgetting somebody else, but they were basically all proud Trump supporters, Trump voters, oh. Trump cabinet members, Trump family members, Trump administration members, um, and the and their all of their testimony is in some ways politically against interest. And, um, and it's factual and all of the people who have equal or greater access to the facts are either pleading the fifth <laughs> or <Right. laughs> um, and at some point, uh, that should be somewhat telling. And so I, in some ways, I think this is the best of all possible worlds, or at least it was prior to Cassidy Hutchinson. It was the best of all possible worlds for, for McCarthy because the adversarial, mm -hmm. if there was if there was good face adversarial stuff, it would have served. This is a point Annie McCarthy and Jonathan Turley keep making on Fox. It probably would have served to reinforce the major takeaways of these hearings because they don't have much to re, to work with to rebut. That said, one of the like if they could have Jim Jordan all that, you could totally see Jim Jordan playing dirty pool and like leaking to the Trumpists what they're going to what the questions are going to be leaking here's the evidence that we have you got to nail down this witness you got to get them back in the fold that kind of thing and that might have been to trump's advantage i don't think it would be to to the republican party's advantage i i i totally concur and i think this is uh these have been bad for kevin mccarthy uh and donald trump but i think good long term for the republican party i i concur completely um i think that this is a real problem for the committee, this last hearing that they did with Cassidy Hutchison. And while, Jonah, you are exactly right that saying, well, she got the car that he was in wrong or the person didn't tell her that story exactly or the person was exaggerating when he did tell her the story, um, you know, who cares that he lunged at the uh, steering wheel? That's not really the point at all. The point is actually something that Donald Trump has already said publicly many times that he wanted to go to the Capitol that day. Um, and the the real legally relevant part of her testimony was whether he knew that people in the crowd were armed at that point because right. he had said, um, you know, let them through the magnetometers uh, without checking them for weapons. Uh, but the other, just well, the other legally important thing is the Giuliani conversation where they clearly were planning some big thing about going to the Capitol on January sixth. This wasn't a spontaneous crowd going. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just think those are the two important legal things. Uh, fair. Um, but the problem is that it now, I think uh, one of the things that the committee had going for it in my mind, and I've obviously complained that I think for someone like me, I really rely on an adversarial process to discern where the truth lies. And it has been a disservice for viewers like me who are like, well, but no one's there to, you know, rebut this at all. Um, and I want to see the weak rebuttal to know that the rebuttal would be weak type thing. But at least up till this point, I have been somewhat comforted by the idea that it's, you know, sure, people, all, all the people who agree with this narrative are on the committee. You can say it's bipartisan or not bipartisan, whatever you want, but they definitely all agree with that single narrative. Um, but we've been hearing from so many Trump officials that in some ways it has been bipartisan or adversarial in that sense. Um, and that that has worked to the committee's advantage. What they've done here, unfortunately, it seems to me, 
is they put out information that they didn't press um, when they put her in the witness chair. And now you have this cyclone going on around her um, of people undermining her credibility. I actually, it doesn't matter in the end to some extent, like, again, because we already said, it doesn't matter whether he grabbed the steering wheel. It doesn't matter which car he was in. You know, the things that they're disputing about her testimony, you're right, don't matter in some sense. But in another sense, I do think it massively undermines the committee not having that adversarial process because it shows what happens when everyone um, wants to believe what she's saying. It's that difference between um, can I believe this and must I believe it? They mm-hmm. never said to themselves, must I believe that he lunged for the steering wheel? Instead, they said, can I believe that he lunged for the steering wheel? Of course I can. We don't need to go and try to corroborate her testimony before putting this out there. And if that's the case, um, they've been so scrupulously just the facts, ma'am, up to this point. It now undermines all of that. And I think that is well, a huge me- problem for the committee that has otherwise been really... Um, Uh, has built up their credibility over weeks now. So I, I've been all over the place in my head about this. And there have been moments where I agree with you entirely. And there are moments where I'm not sure. Um, I think your position is, is, is entirely defensible and probably right. (laughs) But let me open up a jar of galaxy brain for you. Um, and this is, this is something I hear from people. I'm not saying I necessarily subscribe to it, but I hear from people quite a bit. This is hearsay. This is hearsay. (laughs) It is hearsay. I hear people say that, um, this is baiting the Trump people, right? This is baiting, um, uh, all sorts of witnesses that now need to be under oath to impeach her testimony. Right. It, it's it's fine to say on OAN, uh, she's a lying pawn of the deep state. Right. It's another thing to hold your hand up and swear um, under penalty of perjury or contempt of Congress. Um, she's lying. Right. And and the people who they want to get to testify don't know what else the committee already knows. And don't know whether or not they could get busted in a lie. Um, and the politically now, I, I look, I get that there are all sorts of people who say the allegations from Hirschman about this note that he says he wrote and she says she wrote. Um, the allegation. By the about way, the, footnote, the this story. is one of the weirdest controversies. This Very is a note strange. that is handwritten that she has testified under oath that she wrote dictation from Mark Meadows and that he has testified under oath that he wrote. Uh, First of all, this is like, uh, I don't remember how old he is, but like a your age man versus a 25-year-old female. And I just find it hard to believe that on spec, we can't tell who wrote it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's it's, it's very strange. And also, like, uh, my wife, the fair Jessica, was, was... fairly livid about this because uh, her interpretation of it was that this guy wants credit for this good thing and wants to deny it to 
her, even though she was not claiming credit for it. She was saying she was taking dictation. So it's not a materially important fact um, in, in, the, in that sense, because it was clearly showed that they knew that they were crying. You know, anyway, it doesn't matter. But my point is, if you want to push back on this stuff, if the Trump people really want to, like, say this didn't the important stuff that she alleges didn't happen, you can't do it on, you know, the Mark Levin show. You got to do it under oath. <laughs> and um, and that's where I think that let you. this is the argument that people make. I don't want to say I think because I go back and forth about this, is that this is part of some master strategy to entice more people to come in and and testify. What do you make of it? Too clever by half? Too clever by half. Um, because they don't need that to win this. They do just need to go on Mark Levin. This isn't a criminal trial. It isn't. And it doesn't really matter. Uh, I mean, it, it ma- the, I'll put it this way, Sarah. In many, many ways, you are a special demographic, right? Oh, I know. Uh, right? So the, <laughs> the people, <clears throat> the, the number of people in America who are like, I see that the president openly tried to commit a coup. I saw, I saw him do it. But I want to know the nitty gritty legal details. Like, for me, <laughs> for me, I... For me, I don't care the the criminal prosecution part of it. There are a lot of Democrats who are really, really thirsty for criminal prosecutions here. Uh, they want John Eastman prosecuted. They want Rudy Giuliani prosecuted. And I suppose uh, it, that there is a, a consequences thing here that would be important uh, that to prosecute people who commit crimes. But this is a political that we have a political problem that requires a political solution. And the political problem is that many in the Republican Party refuse to acknowledge what Donald Trump did, right? That's the problem. Um, and as Jonah has said many times, you can't move on from something that you haven't already processed and said, yep, that's correct. Donald Trump tried to commit a coup. He did, I think, I guess, no president has ever come close uh, to doing what he did. And he threatened our great one of our greatest birthrights, perhaps our greatest birthright, going back to John Adams and then with Thomas Jefferson, the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, so getting Republicans to admit what Donald Trump did and in, in sufficient enough numbers is really important for the country, right? And this is where good faith Democrats part company with the kind of folks who are getting Doug Mastriano uh, nominated for governor of Pennsylvania on a platform of promising to pre-steal the next election. Um, so yes, the I, I don't, I, here's what the unfair part is, is that, History will remember Donald Trump throwing a cheeseburger across the room in a fit of rage. Uh, was it a cheeseburger? Was it a club sandwich? Uh, what In what room? Was it mayonnaise or was it ketchup? Uh, those details will get lost. And uh, if Trump is unfairly alleged to have done these things, uh, it will stick to him no matter what, because people love detail, right? That's what we try to put in a news story. That's what we try to put into a column. We want to pack it with details because that's what makes makes it sticky. So that part is unfair. Um, but I think in the in the I doubt this is the committee's last blockbuster witness. And I bet that the narrative will move on from here. So on the flip side, I think that, you know, and and we tell this to young people all the time, especially those looking to go into any sort of, um, you know, press secretary communications role. All it takes is one time for you to say something untrue and your credibility is gone forever. You have to be right every single time. Um, and 
I think now there is, it doesn't matter what the committee does. It doesn't matter if they have a bombshell oh coming gosh. up because oh, everything now they will have that pre-made rebuttal of, yeah, but remember nobody last- who's making that argument is persuadable. There's no, there's no one oh, who Chris, is going to think, say that. Fair. I don't think anyone's persuadable, really. My point is that before, to Jonah's point, they didn't really have particular pushback to anything the committee was saying. Instead, the pushback was, nobody's paying attention. We're not watching this. Now they have the pushback. The committee handed that to them. And I think that was a sloppy mistake to make. I'm, I don't know what they have or how it will go. But if Republicans are hanging their hat on uh, that they're going to make this better for them by going after this witness and, and discrediting her statements. If that's where they are, they're in a very bad place. Uh, that's I not a, that I, I know you do, but I'm just I'm here to tell you that there are persuadable voters in America uh, and the Republicans who are fixated on this committee are not among them. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's use that, Jonah, to segue to your column this week, which is like a song that I wish... Um, to be sung from the rooftops. And that is the steroids on which, at least at this point, it really seems contained to the Democratic Party of the Claire McCaskill strategy of picking your opponent. And so Claire McCaskill wrote a piece, of, she wrote a book, but then um, that was published in, an excerpt of it was published in Politico in 2015, that she spent... Um, million plus dollars making sure Todd Aiken won the Republican nomination in Missouri. And she said it was a gamble, but it was a risk worth taking so that she could stay in the Senate. Uh, We have now, there was like a trickle at first of other people thinking that was an interesting strategy because obviously it did work for Claire McCaskill in one more term she got from that gamble. But as you pointed out- she did so much important work. I know. uh, (laughs) In that last term. But now it's seen as the go-to strategy on the left is to pick the most extreme Republican candidate, one who thinks the election was stolen, um, uh, you know, QAnon adjacent, because they think they will be easier to beat with some of these independent middle-of-the-road voters. In an election year like this, Jonah, that with an economy like this, with gas prices like this, uh, 
it's a hell of a gamble to take with democracy. And you made some really smart points about it. Tell us about those smart points. So, um, I'm agnostic about the, the, the Todd Akin strategy. I mean, it's hardball. It's ugly. Um, he's a bozo. Uh, I'm not, you know, I probably would have written in some third person if I lived in, in Missouri back then, um, cause I wouldn't have voted for either of them, but the stakes were pretty low, right? Whether you, whether the three of us believe that our democracy faces an existential threat from these QAnon adjacent, election denying, Trumpist, MAGA types, 2000 mule, uh, super fans, whatever, uh, doesn't matter in this context. Because the people who are saying that they pose an existential threat, that they are fascists, that they will end our democracy, that they will overturn the Constitution, and that they are authoritarians, and they will complete Donald Trump's attempted coup. The people who are warning about that, basically by which I mean the entire green room of Morning Joe, um, that, that those people have either support or are saying nothing about the fact <laughs> that they're picking these crazies over more moderate Republicans. I mean, the, 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 the case that, that enrages me the most is Valadeo, the um, yes. California congressman who voted to impeach the president. And his, his life has been hellish ever since. And in the wake of his vote to impeach, every single, like, talking, liberal talking head and Democrat was like, this is heroic. These kinds of patriotic, civic-minded, decent, law-abiding Republicans are a vanishing breed. Woe betide us. Let me turn my concern trolling to 11. Um, you know, the whole thing. And then Democrats spent more money on his opponent. Oh, no, they, I'm sorry. They spent money running ads attacking Valadeo for voting to impeach Trump. Yep. They spent money literally denouncing his vote to impeach because they thought that would help get some MAGA nut ele election denier the nomination in the Republican Party. It is so profoundly cynical. And if, if they're e either they don't believe the threat to democracy stuff, and, and in which case they are actually damaging democracy, by saying that democracy is in peril and in heightening the sense of polarization and extremism, or they do believe it, but they are so much more concerned about their short-term political gain that they are willing to roll the dice on this, you know, uh, strategy of bringing people into the government that they themselves think pose an existential threat to America. It is grotesque. It, it is the most rotten thing uh, right now in the business that I can think of. But Chris, wait. My question to you real quick before you uh, dive into that, what is the Democrats' best argument for why they're doing this? What do they say when confronted with a Jonah Goldberg-type opinion? They don't say anything because uh, they run them through super PACs. The, um... Well, I saw in Pennsylvania the Josh Shapiro campaign said that, in fact, uh, Mastriano was already going to win the nomination. He was so far ahead that they were just getting a head start on running against the person who clearly was going to be their opponent. They weren't trying to help him win the primary. That was a done deal. And he won by, what, 23, 25 points. If you think that their ad buy pushed him over the line, you're kidding yourself. 
And so their argument is we're not propping these people up. We're running ads against them. It's not like we're saying Mastriano is a great guy. Um, and I think, I especially think with the Josh Shapiro argument in Pennsylvania, there is something to that. Well, I what about the Pritzker thing in, in Chicago? Anyway, we go on. Yeah, Chris, I'm sorry. I, I make I make a, a very specific habit of not listening to what partisans say about things because what do you expect them to say, right? Uh, what are they going to say? Like, ah, you're right, you caught us. We're the worst. Uh, so who cares? Um, the uh, for me, and this is what I wrote about uh, in my note last week. Subscribe to Starwaltisms. Uh, but I talked to the woman who is now the Republican nominee for uh, governor in Colorado, who is a victim of one of these. And now she's going to run against Jared Polis. And as you say, Colorado, you know, this is a year that uh, Trump lost Colorado by like, I forget, 11, 12 points, whatever, a, a, a doughty margin. But Republicans can win statewide in Colorado. She won statewide in Colorado. She got elected to the uh, Board of Regents for the uh, university system. Um, and I talked to her and here was her experience. She was uh, way up, way ahead, and then lo and behold, right at the end. And I wonder, by the way, what ha- if, if this wasn't a factor in what's the name of the woman who uh, rose in the Pennsylvania Senate race and cost and almost cost Oz his oh, uh, wow. nomination? Yeah, I don't you remember her name I right mean. now. Yep. But what? Yeah, okay. but I'll look it up. I. And but in a similar burst. Uh, so I do wonder about uh, the provenance of of all of her rise. But here is this candidate. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name nominee. Uh, but here in the question of middle aged men remembering things. Oh, yeah, it was Kathy Barnett in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Caleb, uh, who has Google on his phone. Um, but the phenomenon her experience was in Colorado way up. And then the Democrats start in heavy rotation with this ad propping up the the underdog, a guy who was sort of a perennial candidate. Uh, this is a guy who had a, a proposal to create the Electoral College for Colorado so that they would not have direct popular election of governors uh, and statewide officials anymore. Uh, he's a real fringe And all of a sudden, his numbers go through the roof and, and the race moves into a dead heat. She ended up winning, but she was desperate there at the end. What Democrats have done, uh, so look, nor, this is Claire McCaskill didn't invent this. This is an ancient practice, right? Fiddling with the other side's primary is as old as primaries, right? Uh, under my, and if you go back to the time before primaries, fiddling with the nominating process on the other side, a, a, a longstanding tradition. And as Jonah said, politics is rotten, right? People do all kind of rotten stuff in politics, and it's fine. Remember Operation or Chaos? It, Remember there were. I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Get the Russia go voted vote. voting for Al Sharpton in the primaries to get him to be the go, nominee. Go, you better go vote for Barack Obama, said Rush Limbaugh, because what you've got to do is uh, uh, make him the nominee because he'll be way easier to beat than Hillary Clinton. Uh, so this is not a new thing. But Jonah Goldberg is 100% correct. The stakes are simply too high, right? It's just you cannot put people in office. And, the, you know, everybody's seen the ads, but I watched a bunch of the Colorado ads. And, yeah, they're attack ads, but they're attacking them for loving Donald Trump too much, being too conservative, being too pro-life, all of the things that are catnip for Republican primary voters. And it's rotten. Uh, it's dispatriotic. Uh, and Democrats who are increasing in number opposed to this, 
I, I read the story in the New York Times of these billionaires who gathered, Democratic donor billionaires, including the guy who founded LinkedIn, and what a crime, speaking of crimes against humanity, uh, <laughs> but the guy who founded LinkedIn and, the, and these other mega donors getting together to say, what can we do to prevent these nuts from getting in at local and state offices and desperate to prevent this from happening? Where do they find allies in the Republican Party to do this? What can we do? While on the other side of their own party, you have people dropping tens of millions of dollars to put the worst kind of folks in positions of power. It's really rotten. And with that, we're going to move on to our last segment, which is not worth your time. And today's not worth your time is Jonah Goldberg's Twitter feed. He attacked, attacked spiders on his Twitter feed, uh, citing an attack ad of his own published by the Daily Mail UK. I mean, not a reliable source to begin with, I might say. Mother says she almost lost her leg to spider bite infection. So first of all, yeah, that happens. If you get a spider bite and you don't get that treated and it's the wrong kind of spider, um, yeah, it can be pretty serious. Jonah uses this though, to go after all spiders, including the beautiful, loving garden spiders that you see every morning, Uh, Jonah says, and yet Sarah continues to support spiders, shaking my damn head. Uh, Not worth your time. The spiders that you have come to know and love in your life are of no threat. Do not let Jonah use his fear-mongering, his hate to infect your life because spiders are our friends. <laughs> so I did not know this is coming. Uh, I feel like this is a, a unprovoked attack. Um, wrong on spiders, wrong for America. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am proudly bigoted and prejudiced in my allegiances to the, in the animal kingdom. The cuter, you, the more aesthetically pleasing you are to the human gaze, the more I like you. Jumping the less spiders pleasing, are so cute. You haven't been watching all the TikToks where they do little baby voices for them. Yeah, the reason they have to do baby voices for them is because they have to anthropomorphize them uh, because spiders are hideous. Um, I, I'm, I have a truce with spiders. Um, I don't need to like or dislike them. Uh, they do a good job that I'm in favor of. And as long as they don't touch me or really get within, you know, a close proximity with, within arm's reach of me or my family, they can do whatever they want to do. But if they get in the hot zone, they're going down. Uh, but I'm, I'm, so I, I'm, I, I'm, I feel, you know what? I feel about spiders uh, the way that I feel about the FBI. Like I won't, <laughs> I won't go around them if they don't want to come around me. And that's fine. They have work to do. I understand. So let's just keep it that way. I think that's fair. Okay, a... so I want to throw yeah. something out here. Um, I put it yeah. in Slack in our Slack channel. Yeah. I found this on Twitter. It's called a Spalax. Do you know what a Spalax is, Sarah? No, and I actually questioned whether that was even a real video. So if you look it up, it's S-P-A-L-A-X. It's a thing. And um, it's a it's a part of the sort of uh, the the the. I just want to state there are very few animals that I am not very very familiar with, and yet you did find one. It was the spalax. Yeah, so it's it a kind of like, mole rat, right? Yeah, it's like a cousin to the naked mole rat, but this one isn't naked. It is well yeah. dressed. So it's kind of better looking, and um, 
and maybe it's because I just recently did a podcast with Jay Norlinger and we got really pedantic about word usage, which I enjoy doing. But when I looked it up this morning, the part of the Wikipedia thing on it says that they they are completely blind and have a subterranean lifestyle. Now, who am I to gainsay the subterranean lifestyle? But the, <laughs> the, the question I have is, if you don't have eyes in the first place, mm-hmm. can you say something is blind? Oh. Yeah, I mean, I also will say that as a trivia question, I did not know that there were mammals without eyes. So I feel like yeah. that alone was really new information awesome. to me. I knew we had, you know, uh, some creatures on the planet, but they were like deep sea, you know, things that didn't need light photons type thing. Um, so I, I will say, Jonah, despite your spider bigotry, and I just want to note, like, bugs are welcome in my house and they all get special escorts back outside, except the spiders, because they can live inside. They're doing a job here and I appreciate them. Um, and I don't think they'll live outside. They're meant to be inside spiders. This thing is awesome. I love it's, this it, thing. It, 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 yeah. So, but, yeah. But, 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 like, but, but Sarah, like the, the thing about no eyes, right? I mean, like trees have no eyes. You would not say, oh, you know, that oak is blind, <laughs> right? Don't they, Joe? Um, yeah. And it's also they? interesting from a brain standpoint. We talked about this on the opening of the book club podcast that we're doing for dispatch members that, um, you know, we'd say like, oh, that's the seeing part of your brain. Like that's the the space right. where audio stuff, that's not really true. Um, our brains do organize around the senses coming in, but it's all just electrical impulses. And even for an hour, if I blindfold you, the other parts uh, adjacent on your brain will start encroaching into your visual uh, receptors in your brain. And so presumably this mole rat actually does have spatial reasoning that is coming from different senses. Like for instance, Mm -hmm. we know bats use echolocation. Some animals use magnetic uh, poles, for instance, to be able to do their spatial reasoning. So probably he's not blind in the way that we would think about it. It's not that he doesn't have a sense of the space around him. He probably has um, something very close to what we would think of as vision. It's just not through the electrical impulses coming through a cornea and a retina. So Spalex may say, you know, uh, you know, that smells very far away. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, w- I wish I could say the same of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, while Jonah's spider hatred may not be worth your time, I think his love of the Spalex is very much worth our time. And I appreciate you bringing it to our attention, Jonah. Thank you. And with that... We will talk to you all again next week. And I said it exactly that way so Jonah wouldn't be able to say... No, you won't. This is a podcast. (laughs) Happy Fourth of July. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.